this is Dr. Bob Evans, and welcome to our podcast, Parental Alienation from Couch to Courtroom and Beyond. We will discuss the resisting and refusing dynamic, commonly referred to as parental alienation, how you'll know it's happening in your case, and what can be done about it. Parental alienation can cause stress and trauma in high-conflict cases. These podcasts focus on how attorneys and mental health professionals can support families and children. Welcome to a continuation of our podcast for the year 2022. Welcome back, everybody. This would be episode six in our series. And I discovered an interesting book um, on the topic of Dr. Bowlesby, B-O-W-L-B-Y. There's no S. It's Bowlby. And obviously, he's the person who really developed the whole theory of attachment theory. And so it turns out that uh, in 1976, he gave a presentation to the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And in that lecture, he really did a a deep dive, if you will, into the whole concept of um, uh, attachment theory. And I thought it was really interesting because I see the parallels with attachment theory and the involvement of attachment as a concept, a phenomenon, in the whole area of parental alienation. And what happens frequently in the process of alienation is the negative consequences when that attachment is disrupted. And so I want to read some of the presentation that he did, and he gives into some specific aspects of uh, attachment that are very much relevant to uh, parental alienation. So let's take a look at it. I'm kind of going in the middle of, of his presentation, and I'll interject my sense of where this involves parental alienation. So we begin with, For what convenience I am terminating, and obviously that's John Bowlby, for what convenience I I am terming attachment theory is a way of conceptualizing the propensity of human beings to make strong affectional bonds to particular others and of explaining the many forms of emotional distress and personality disturbance, including anxiety, anger, depression, and emotional detachment, to which unwilling separation and loss give rise. Fast forward to the 21st century, we look at the whole phenomenon of adverse childhood experiences and the consequences such experiences have on the physical, medical, and psychological health of people. And we know that the disruption of uh, attachment has very significant consequences to people. We continue with, as a body of theory, it deals with the same phenomenon that hitherto have been dealt with in terms of dependency need or of object relations or of symbiosis and individuation. Though it incorporates many psychoanalytic thinking, the theory differs from traditional psychoanalysis in adopting a number of principles 
that derive from the relatively new, keep in mind 1976, relatively new disciplines of ethology, which is uh, the study of animal behavior, and control theory by Dr. Glasser, if you recall. So by doing it, it is, a, it is enabled to dispense with concepts of psychic energy and drive and also to forge close links with cognitive psychology. So think, think about 1976. Psychiatry was, and you know, to probably a large extent still is, very much wedded to psychoanalytic theory. Bowlesby is coming along and saying, hey, no, there's other things that we need to be looking at. And apparently he has always held the position well beyond psychoanalytic uh, theory. We go on. Merit's claim for it that whilst its concepts are psychological, they are compatible with those of not, neurophysiology and developmental biology. And also, it conforms to the original criteria of a scientific discipline. Advocates of attachment theory argue that many forms of psychiatric disturbance can be attributed either to deviations in the development of attachment behavior or more rarely to failure of its development, and also that the theory casts light on both the origin and the treatment of these conditions. Put briefly, the thesis of this lecture is that if we are to help such a patient therapeutically, it is necessary that we enable him to consider in detail how his present modes of perceiving and dealing with emotionally significant persons including the therapist, may be being influenced and perhaps strongly distorted by the experiences with which he had with his parents during the years of his childhood and adolescence, and some of which may perhaps be continuing into the present. Notice the significance of an individual's childhood. This is my interpretation, and we're finding that this is the case these adverse experiences that children have strongly affect their ability to function as an adult and maybe continuing into the present. Notice we look at alienating parents as having very significant disruptive childhoods. We'll continue with this concept. According to Boldby, this entails his reviewing of those experiences in an honest and as honest a way as possible a review with which the therapist can either assist or impede. This is significant because what happens is we find therapists taking on an alienation case and really not going into the details of the parental backgrounds and childhoods. And so their process can impede, which we now know is very common in alienation cases where people participate in counseling and therapy. It usually exacerbates the alienation. Bowlby says, in a brief account, it is possible only to state principles and the rationale behind them. We start with a brief sketch of what is meant by attachment theory. And he has written a number of books, by the way, on this whole thing. So he goes into great detail uh, in other books about attachment theory, the failure, attachment theory and loss, etc. Until the mid-1950s, only one explicitly formulated view of the nature and origin of affectional bonds was present. And in this matter, there were agreement between psychoanalysts and learning theorists. Bonds between individuals develop. It was held because an individual discovers that in order to reduce certain drives, for example, for food, 
in infancy and for sex in adult life, another human being is necessary. This type of theory postulates two kinds of drive, primary and secondary. It categorizes food and sex as primary and dependency and other personal relationships as secondary. Although object relation theorists have tried to modify this formulation, the concepts of dependency, orality, and regression have persisted. Again, reminding you that this is a psychoanalyst thinking. Bowlby goes on and says, Studies of the ill effects on personality development of deprivation of maternal care led me to question the adequacy of the traditional model. Early in the 1950s, Conrad Lorenz's work on imprinting which was first appeared in 1935, became more generally known and offered an alternative approach. At least in some species of bird, he had found strong bonds to a mother figure developed during the early days of life without any reference to food and simply through the young being exposed to and becoming familiar with the figure in question, i.e. the mother. Arguing that empirical data on the development of a human child's tide to his mother can be understood better in terms of a model derived from ethology, study of animals, uh, outlined a th- he outlined a theory of attachment in a previous paper in 1958. Simultaneously and independently, Harlow, Harry Harlow, if you recall, 1958, published the results of his first studies of infant rhesus monkeys reared on dummy mothers. A young monkey, he found, will cling to a dummy that does not feed it, provided the dummy is soft and comfortable to cling to. During the past 15 years, the results of a number of empirical studies of human children have been published. The new formulations regarding pathological anxiety and phobia have been advanced, and also regarding the mourning and its psychiatric complications. So, Parks, in 1971 had extended the theory to cover the range of responses seen whenever a person encounters a major change in his life situation. Many studies have been made of comparable behavior in primate species. Briefly put, attachment behavior is conceived of as any form of behavior that results in a person attaining or retaining proximity to some other differentiated and preferred individual who is usually conceived as stronger and or wiser. Whilst especially evident during early childhood, attachment behavior is held to characterize human beings from the cradle to the grave. It includes crying and calling, which elicit care, following and clinging, and also strong protest should a child be left alone or with strangers. With age, the frequency and the intensity with which such behavior is exhibited diminishes the steadily. Nevertheless, all these forms of behavior persist as an important part of humans' behavioral equipment. In adults, they are especially evident when a person is distressed, ill, or afraid. The particular patterns of attachment behavior shown by an individual turn partly on his present age, sex, and circumstances, and partly on the experiences he has had with the attachment figures earlier in life. As a way of conceptualizing proximity, keeping attachment theory in contrast to dependency theory, he emphasizes the following features. So these are the features that Bowlby talks about in terms of uh, comprises, if you will, attachment. So there's specificity. 
attachment behaviors directed towards one or a few individuals, usually in clear order of preference, a few individuals. So that would include a mother and a father. Duration. An attachment endures usually for a large part of the life cycle, although during adolescence, early attachments may attenuate and become supplemented by new ones and in some cases are replaced by them. Early attachments are not easily abandoned and they commonly persist. Engagement of emotion. Many of the most intense emotions arise during the formation, the maintenance, the disruption, and the renewal of attachment relationships. The formation of a bond is described as falling in love, maintaining a bond as loving someone, and losing a partner as grieving over someone. Similarly, Threat of loss arouses anxiety, and actual loss gives rise to sorrow, while each of these situations is likely to arouse anger. Keep in mind the child's reaction to being deprived of another parent at the hands of a parent. Bowlby goes on with the unchallenged maintenance of a bond is experienced as a source of security. The unchallenged maintenance of a bond is experienced as a source of security and the renewal of a bond as a source of joy. So think about a parent who has been alienated from a child and has successfully been reunited. That child will experience, according to Bowlby, a sense of joy, a source of joy. Because such emotions are usually a reflection of the state of the person's affectional bonds, the psychology and the psychopathology of emotion is found to be in large part the psychology and the psychopathology of affectional bonds. Disrupt an affectional bond, you're going to create some psychopathology. Ontogeneity. In a large majority of human infants, attachment behavior to a preferred figure develops during the first nine months of life. The more experience of social interaction an infant has with a person, the more likely he is to become attached to that person. The more involved both parents are to a child's during their development, the more attached that child becomes to that parent. For this reason, whoever is principally mothering a child becomes his principal attachment figure. That makes sense. After all, the first figure that an infant sees and opens its eyes to is the mother coming out of the child of the mother's womb. Attachment behavior remains readily activated until near the end of the third year in healthy development. It becomes gradually less readily activated thereafter in healthy development. So the first three years of life is really critical. So when we get these alienation cases and, and young children, three and younger, are involved, this is, this is incre- incredibly significant. Another factor within attachment is learning. Whereas learning to distinguish the familiar from the strange is a key process in the development of attachment, the conventional rewards and punishment used by experimental psychologists play only a small part. Indeed, an attachment can develop despite repeated punishment from the attachment figure. I'll say that again, that... Indeed, an attachment can develop despite repeated punishment from the attachment figure. We see this played out in um, neglect cases. We see this played out in abuse cases where that child will maintain that relationship with the abusing, perpetrating parent. This goes back to 1976 when Bowlby pointed this out. 
Another factor in attachment is organization. Initially, attachment behavior is mediated by responses organized on fairly simple lines. From the end of the first year, it becomes mediated by increasingly sophisticated behavioral systems organized cybernetically and incorporating representational models of the environment and self. In other words, we're creating models in our mind, in our head, in terms of what the environment is. Is it a safe environment? Is it an encouraging environment? Are people around me safe and encouraging and loving? And I learned about myself. Am I attractive? Am I smart? Am I lovable? Can I love? These systems are activated by certain conditions and terminated by others. Amongst activating conditions are strangeness, hunger, fatigue, and anything frightening. Terminating conditions include sight or sound of mother figure and especially happy interaction with her. When attachment behavior is strongly aroused, termination may require touching or clinging to her and or being cuddled by her. Conversely, when mother figure is present or her whereabouts is well known, a child ceases to show attachment behavior and instead explores his environment. That's an interesting phenomenon because what we see is basically um, a strong, exaggerated attachment to alienating parents, which is not necessarily healthy. Then as a biological function, attachment behavior occurs in the young of almost all species of mammal, and in a number of species it persists throughout adult life. Although there are many differences of detail between species, maintenance of proximity by an immature animal to a preferred adult, almost always mother, but he also talks about both parents, is the rule with which suggests that such behavior has survival value. We need our attachment figures in order to survive. Elsewhere, Bowlesby argued that by far the most likely function of attachment behavior is protection, mainly from predators. Notice how the rejected or targeted parent becomes a predator, and so therefore the child needs to be protected by the alienating parent. Thus, attachment behavior is conceived as a class of behavior distinct from feeding behavior and sexual behavior and of at least an equal significance in human life. There's nothing intrinsically childish or pathological about it, i.e. attachment theory. It will be noted that the concept of attachment differs greatly from that of dependence. For example, dependence is not specifically related to maintenance of proximity. It is not directed towards the specific individual. It does not imply an enduring bond, nor is it necessarily associated with strong feelings. No biological function is attributed to it. Furthermore, the concept of dependence, there are value implications, the exact opposite of those that the concept of attachment conveys. Whereas to refer to a person as dependent tends to be disparaging, to describe him as attached to someone can well be an expression of approval. Conversely, for a person to be detached in his personal relations is usually regarded as less than admirable. The disparaging element in the concept of dependence, which reflects a failure to recognize the value that attachment behavior has for survival, is held to be a fatal weakness to its clinical use. So you see, when Bowlesby talks about attachment and, it, and the human's need for attachment figures, 
This is a critical aspect to how they're going to function in adult life. We're going to end there for now, and we'll pick up with other concepts as we move along. I want everyone to remember that uh, you're allowed to please participate. Go to naopas.com. You'll notice a number of training opportunities there. And I'll tell you what, for the new year, I'm going to set up a coupon. It'll call coupon will be called podcast. And if you are interested in participating in any of our online courses, uh, use the coupon podcast and you will uh, get a 50%, 50%, one half off on all of the training programs that we have on that site. So we'll look forward to hearing from you next time and naopas.com and type in podcast where it says when you're paying for the course and you'll get a 50% discount. So thank you and well, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more information on this topic, please visit www.drbobevans.com or www.naopas.com. We offer classes for both legal and mental health professionals to help educate them on the signs and strategies of parental alienation and how to move forward for a healthier environment for the children of divorce. Please visit www.naopas.com and sign up for our courses and use coupon code PODCAST for a 50% discount. Mm-hmm.